I think for so many people, when they read the description of a four on the Enneagram, they think, oh, they like to be unique. They're this special, unique little snowflake creature. And that's not really the lived experience when you're talking about the history. For a lot of us early on, it felt like this sense of being different in a defective sense. Like there's something wrong with you. I'm Sawyer Witted. And I'm Scott Tress. Welcome to The Stories That Make Us. This podcast uses the tool of the Enneagram to explore the beauty and complexity of humanity through stories, both real and fictional. Some episodes, we interview live guests about their stories through the lens of their types. Other episodes, we'll dissect fictional characters to discover their types and learn more about ourselves in the process. Because the reality is, it can be hard to see ourselves accurately. The eye can see everything but itself. Thanks for joining us, and let's get to it. Scotty boy, what's mm-hmm. up, my fella? I am doing good as always. That's good. I didn't ask you how you were. I just said, what's up? But mm, I'll, well, it was implied. <laughs> I actually hate that when people say like, what's up? And I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> it just feels so uncomfortable. I, it's really the only answer that's acceptable. Is it? I feel like you're supposed <laughs> to say nothing much. Isn't that supposed to be like, oh, nothing much. Mm. My life's falling apart, but nothing much. <laughs> anyway, I have a question for you. Okay. If you had a pet parrot, what would you teach it to say? <laughs> Another one of your lovely questions. Um, You're welcome. Mm, pet parrot. Well, that I don't prep you for. Yes. By the way, dear listener, <laughs> I don't prep Scott for these questions. <laughs> I just ask them. Oh, man. Short notice makes it tough. Oh, man. This might be a little on the immature side, but how great would it be to have a parrot that just goes, that's what she said? <laughs> Whenever you're having a conversation. You're a child. You're right. <laughs> You're right. It was immature and I'm here for it. That's great. That would be like Michael Scott's parrot. <laughs> That's my inspiration. Yeah, of course. I think that for myself, I would probably, this is like a serious answer, which is really lame. You shouldn't give a serious answer to yeah. a funny Oh, you got to even out mine. But here we are. Yeah, sure. I would teach the parrot how to say no so that the parrot can say no for me since I struggle to say no in every sphere of my life. <laughs> But I don't think people accept the parrot answering for you. Maybe they would if it like followed me around <laughs> on my shoulder. I don't know. That'd be touche. Weird. That'd be a weird sight. Anyway, today's episode. So we are talking about type fours today. Mm-hmm. The core fear of type four is being inadequate, plain and mundane, defective, flawed, or insignificant. Now, again, just like with every type, there's a childhood message that we feel or perceive when we're children. That was either said to us explicitly or we just experienced it and it was more implicit. Regardless, this message was very true for us. Young type fours felt a deep sense of loss when they were little, either externally in their situations and relationships or internally in regards to themselves. They felt overlooked, on the outside looking in, not included. They were told growing up that they were too dramatic, sensitive, and this led the child four to believe an unconscious message that it is not okay to be too much or too little. As they're running from this core fear, they're running towards this core desire, which is to be their real, special, unique, authentic self. All along the way, though, as we know, they're tripping over this core weakness. For the type four, that's envy. And what that looks like for them is that they believe that there's something everyone else has that they do not. It's a missing piece of sorts that everyone else seems to have, but was lost on them. They devote themselves to being special at all costs, or if not special, then at least seen and understood. They're always longing for something more, and they never feel satisfied with who they are or what they already have. 
they can sometimes feel sad even about other people's happiness. So that's kind of the spirit of envy for the four. And again, as I always say, like the secret sauce, the core longing comes in and saves you from the trap of your type. This is the fourth core motivation. And the core longing for type fours is you are seen in love for who you are, special and unique. So today, as usual, we don't want to just chat about type fours in theory. Mm -hmm. We want someone who is a type four to explain to us what it's like to see life through their unique lens. Today, friends, I am excited to introduce you to my dear friend, Spencer. Spencer is a husband of 10 years and a dad to two young kids. He is a student training to become a therapist with interest in neuroscience and trauma counseling. Some of his interests include reading, swimming, hiking in the Southern California hills where he lives, and camping in the national forests. He bartends on the weekends and loves people in all of their interesting variety and is passionate about cultivating deep and authentic relationships. And he is also a four on the Enneagram. Here's my interview with Spencer. Spencer, thanks for being on the show. I am very excited to be here. This has been a long time in the making. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of reschedules. <laughs> yes, but we are yeah. finally here. Yeah, it's great to have you here, man. Okay, so jumping into type fours, the first core motivation is called the core fear. And for type fours, that's being inadequate, plain, mundane, defective, flawed, insignificant. Oftentimes as kids, we interpret these messages that are either explicitly said to us or just implicitly experienced by us. Regardless of how we experience it, we develop these unconscious messages. Oftentimes, young type fours felt like there was a deep sense of loss, like they were excluded somehow. They were on the outside looking in. They felt overlooked. They were often told that they're too dramatic or sensitive. And this all led the child four to believe this unconscious message that it's not okay to be too much or too little. So as we start there for the type fours, because as I said, most things start in childhood. I'm curious for you, Spencer, what was it like for you growing up? This is always a funny thing to discuss when I'm talking about my type, because obviously the description of a four nails me to a T <laughs> and the unique part of me implicitly rejected that at first. But when I think about who I was growing up as a small child in my home, all these messages were there, even if in my household, they weren't spoken out loud. I think of my mom and dad who are sweet, kind, fun people, but they didn't seem to know what to do with a serious kid like me. I had this sense that I was somehow bringing down the vibe of the house. My parents were both youth pastors, had a lot of energy, were always around teenagers, and I was introverted and bookish. This deep wet blanket oh. is the message I seem to receive. I think a significant contributor to that as well was that my dad's style of communication was very sarcastic. Everything was a joke. Everything was a double entendre. Everything was not serious. And as just a very authentic, genuine kid, I didn't know how to navigate that. And I didn't know how to ask for a different way of talking, a different way of communicating. It was just the first language of our home was this joking, sarcastic banter. And I was smart, but I couldn't follow. I think that it's there that I developed this radar of what do people actually mean behind their words? And at a very early age, I was trying to figure out what people meant. And I found myself always feeling misunderstood, which led to more explosive, angry behavior in my like late childhood, early teens. But it wasn't that they didn't love me, but they, they didn't seem to understand me. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. And I know a lot of your story because you're one of my best friends, mm -hmm. but can you talk a little bit about the sense of loss that you felt from that? Mm -hmm. I think I felt it, and then if I had to name it at the time as a sense of exclusion, of like you said before, being on the outs, 
there was a relationship with my dad or my, my younger brother that just felt absent. Yet at the same time, I didn't really relate to my sister or my mom all that much either. I, I felt like this unique creature on the outside that was like this little bookworm on an island by myself. And I used a lot of stories and books and escapes to try to make sense of how that could be possible. Because the message at some point becomes there's something wrong with me. And if I'm not a part of this family for some reason, then obviously I'm the problem. And I think so the loss for me, it felt like being outside of your own family. That's heartbreaking. It, it hurts to talk about in those terms. But if I'm being honest about my felt experience, that's what it felt like. From the outside, it probably didn't look that way. Mm. For a lot of people, I think that looking at our family, we were a happy little unit and my parents were doing their best and I was just a sensitive kid. But there were lots of lost opportunities, I think, for my parents to see me where I was. Is there a particular story that you can think from your childhood in which this this message stands out for you that it's not okay to be too much or too little message i can think of examples of the explosiveness i was talking about before mm -hmm. of the anger that i came to feel later on when you're trying to talk and speak over and over again and it feels like no one can hear you i actually remember a recurring dream that i had as a kid of just this that feeling of running but not having any movement trying to escape some sort of awful thing and like my legs didn't work and no matter how hard i pumped my legs like I stayed in the same spot. It's hard to nail down a specific memory or instance, but I can think of some of my habits that were formed when I was a kid, more like a repeated memory that happened so many times, it's hard to tell you the date. I remember li living in the library as a little kid at school, hiding there, reading some new book or even just browsing the shelves rather than going out on the handball cart and playing ball with the kids. I remember family vacations were an excuse for me to read books. We'd be in some beautiful locale or doing something fun. And more often than not, it was the new book that was in front of me. That was all of my focus. And it was actually really hard for my family to pry me away from that without complaint. To that same effect, I remember countless holidays alone in my room, reading a book rather than interacting with my extended family. And again, that message comes up of maybe there's something wrong with me that I don't want to be a part of this, but I don't particularly remember in any of those instances anyone coming to find me or coming to draw me out. It was an accepted fact that I was that way. And it was such a repeated thing. It's hard to nail down a specific Sure. Day. No, that made a lot of sense though. That was helpful. Something that's so fascinating to me about the Enneagram and one of the reasons I love it so much is that you can have two people who are the same type who have just wildly different childhoods and yet feel the same feelings. Absolutely. I think for so many people, when they read the description of a four on the Enneagram, they think of oh, they like to be unique. They're this special, unique little snowflake creature. And that's not really the lived experience when you're talking about the history. More often than not, that's what it looks like in health or when you grow into it. But for a lot of us early on, it felt like this sense of being different in a defective sense. And it, this sounds ridiculous, but for anybody who's older than 25, a reference to the 1996 movie Matilda with Danny DeVito. I know that movie back to front. And for some reason, I was just discussing this with my wife. I said, why do I resonate so much with this movie about this bookish little girl in this awful family when my family was nothing like that? And it was just this sense of being like fundamentally different than the people right. I live with, the people I grew up around. And I watch a movie like that and see how awful that family is. And it, it almost made me feel guilty for feeling other from my family. Again, that message, like there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. um, you're either not enough or in this moment you're too much, which are contradictory messages. And yet I could believe both of them. 
It, it almost seems like a paradox, but it's not. It actually, it breaks my heart when I hear this message for the type fours because there is a very thin line between not being enough and being too much in the type four's mind. And, it, and it, right. there are some people who do a really bad job of furthering that message in your life. But that's so much pressure for a little kid to have to try to find that exact line and balance on that. Oh, make sure I'm not sharing too much emotion. I don't want it to be seen as dramatic and then and then just disqualified and just dismissed. But then also, mm. like, I don't want to not express myself at all because there's this sense for fours that that's inauthentic. That's not real. That's not genuine. That's right. It's fake. I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. And we'll talk about this a little later. But one thing that was, I think, seriously missing from my childhood was any sense of regulation. When you talk about that thin space between being too much and not being enough, that's actually a much wider livable space than people, than a four would realize. I think most mm-hmm. people have a, a more natural sense of that. But I just think I was a really sensitive kid and there was no one teaching me regulation. There's no one teaching me how to calm down when I was hyperactive or feeling overwhelmed. I didn't know who to go to to comfort me when I was feeling like I wasn't enough. And I didn't know how to ask for that comfort. And so I really just feel with a gentler hand, a grown-up, a parent, an adult showing me, this is how you calm yourself. This is how it's going to be okay. That would have made a world of difference for me. Makes a lot of sense. When we feel these, these wounding messages as kids, we're excellent observers, right? And horrible interpreters. I don't remember who first quoted that, but I've, I've heard that quote multiple times about children. We take everything in and we observe it all happening. We're watching and listening. Little ears are listening to everything you say. <laughs> and yet we're so bad at interpreting that, interpreting what that data means. And so we end up building these false narratives, which, which have parts of truth in them, but we build this false narrative about who we are and our own worth that is not actually true because of what we're observing. And because that feeling is so awful, we develop these defense mechanisms to protect us from feeling those fears. For the type four, that fear of being inadequate, plain mundane, defective, flawed, insignificant, unloved. There's this defense mechanism that the little fours begin to develop. And then by the time you're an adult, it's a full-fledged defense mechanism and it's incredibly powerful. For the type four, that defense mechanism is called introjection. And so it's, it's, it's like the opposite of the word projection, which I think most people are familiar with. Like if you project your feelings onto other people, This is introjection. And what introjection is, is the type four will deeply internalize words said and actions that were performed as negative information and associate that data with their identity. So primarily, they identify with two things. The first is the negative things that others say about them or what the four perceives is behind their words. And the second is the loss and the pain that they've experienced from the past. And so they use this past pain as an excuse to say, no one understands me. I am different. I will never be seen. So there's a subconscious message then that plays for the type four that helps them defend their fear. And it sounds something like this. As I continue to explore, understand, and express my feelings and identity to others, I no longer have to feel misunderstood, unimportant, or unseen. And then I can focus all of my attention on getting what I desire. That message does not necessarily play explicitly. Actually, usually it doesn't play explicitly at all. It's a very subconscious message. And so that leads them then to the core desire, which is the second motivation, which is to be their real, special, unique, and authentic self. And so we'll talk about the core desire in a little bit here. We've already touched on it a bit in our conversation. But for you, Spencer, have you seen this defense mechanism show up in your life? And if so, can you give us a, an example of what that looks like for you? I, I don't have flaws and therefore defense <laughs> mechanisms. But oh, if I had right. to guess or try... Yeah, please. I've been married for almost 10 years now, and I still find myself asking my wife, 
do you actually like me? Do you think mm. that I'm attractive? Have you figured out that I'm I'm too much to handle sometimes? I have a particularly introverted wife. She's a type nine who chews on her feelings and words for a long time mm. and mm. therefore ends up sounding much wiser when she speaks than I do. Yeah. <laughs> so what's funny is that even if she's saying to me, I love you, you're hot. I tend mm -hmm. to dissociate from the words themselves and do this thing where I'm looking at her eyes and I'm wondering, is she actually leaning into me when she says it? Is she fully present in her words? Like I said before, I've always been particularly sensitive to the undercurrent of the people around me, not just what they're saying, but what do they mean? Maybe that's my superpower from growing up in a sarcastic household, just maybe a little unique to me. But the tricky thing about that and the problem with that is that I'm not a mind reader. I think that I've got this highly attuned sense where, oh, I know what she really means. But 50% of the time, I can't know what she's actually like. I probably don't have the ability to guess what she's thinking at any given time. And mm. so I tend to convince myself of what people are thinking rather than actually hear them out and let their words stand. This is a habit I've been breaking over years of growth, but it is definitely a very old defense mechanism in me that I find myself going to internalize not just what people are saying, but what I think they're saying about me. Sure. Okay, help me parse out this half-baked thought. Because fours have been told things like you're dramatic or you're too sensitive, I think that fours can sometimes be perceived as victims because you guys associate the bad things that happened to you from the past all your life, the messages you've internalized, the things you've heard from people explicitly or implicitly, and you immediately associate that with your identity. It's not just like an aspect of you, but like it is you. You are the shame. And then mourning over that and, and feeling the pain of that. And typically fours are no strangers to tears or expressing their emotions. And so I feel like there's a really important difference between being victims and then like having compassion for the type four rather than viewing them as just like, oh, you're just being the victim in a situation. Having compassion for the type four of it's not something you're trying to do where you take this negative data and associate it or assign it to your identity or, or your worth or your value. It's something that automatically happens subconsciously. You're not trying to play the victim or trying to get attention through playing the victim. That's not anyone can do that, right? Anyone can struggle with that. Yeah. And maybe you can struggle with that as a four, but I feel like this introjection piece is very different from victimization. It, yeah. Anyway, so I feel like it's important to parse that out. Absolutely. I definitely agree in that I don't want people thinking of me as some victim, that I grew up in a household where I was unloved, misunderstood, and therefore uniquely broken in a way that made me more sensitive. I actually think that the sensitivity, the emotional sensitivity that I have is a, is a gift that was given yes. to me by God. I was made mm -hmm. this way to feel things deeply and mm -hmm. to probe the depths of life. There's, there's so much beauty out there to understand, and a lot of it's in the pain and the darkness. And mm. I think it's really easy for people to miss that. And it's something that I really appreciate bringing to the table, especially in moments of hardship for others. And so when you talk about internalizing the negative, it's very, very easy for me to find the negative. Counter to that, my whole life, I've actually been developing this equal sense of hope in things. I find the hope in the darkness where I feel like a lot of people don't. I'm more comfortable there than some people are. And so it's, it's a little unfair to think of me as a victim when I'm not completely hurting in the pain sometimes, if that makes sense. Mm, Maybe mm. that's a strange statement, but I don't think that everything's wrong just because I don't have it quite right yet. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it's helpful, especially for those like myself, type sevens and type nines who 
tend to have a very like optimistic outlook on life in the sense that we, I don't mean that in an altruistic good kind of way, actually mean (laughs) that like to our detriment to the point where we'll just ignore the things that are hard for ourselves because we're too afraid to enter into that. I know that I've been very blessed by fours because they help me go to that spot. They help me go to the places that are dark and hard. I also don't think I've ever had a moment with a four where I felt like I was showing too much emotion. No. Because I know that you guys get it. We're asking for it most of the time. We want people to show Mm. up. If our desire is to be understood on this deep, deep level, it Mm. goes both ways. And we Mm. want to know others too. Yeah. And understand them. And I love what you just said about the desire. If our desire is to be understood, I'm just going to like stop that sentence right there because Mm. when we talk about the core desire for fours, I, I honestly, and I feel like fours simultaneously love this and hate this, but I think I struggle the most to describe fours of all nine types because I think you guys, I think every type is really complex, but for me, and maybe it's because four is my security path. So maybe I'm a little more blind to it, but I find it very difficult to describe fours accurately. And specifically, the thing that I get caught up on in that is the core desire. What I had said earlier was that the core desire for type fours is to be their real, special, unique, authentic self. Mm Mm-hmm. But I feel like I like I waffle between is that their core desire that they're always chasing after or or are they chasing after being understood or maybe being understood in their authentic real self? Maybe they have to figure out who they are first so that they can and they have to plumb the depths of their feelings and everything and thoughts so that they can then express them well and articulately and put together so that everyone else will clearly understand them. If it's said well, then everyone will understand me. If I understand me, everyone else will. I don't know. what mm. I'm just riffing. I think what's what's funny about that theory, if you will, is mm-hmm. two things to keep in mind. One, I, I do think, like all types, we're more complex than like the basic description, but but I don't think ultimately any more complex than anyone else. We just tend to be really comfortable with the complicated mm. and are actively seeking out mystery and therefore paradox and therefore confusion. <laughs> hmm. But at the same time, if I can add a caveat to just my particular type, I know that I have a strong five wing. And so when I read the core desire of wanting to be my real, special, unique, authentic self or to feel seen and understood, I think I particularly resonate with that piece of understanding because so much of my battle has also been mental. I'm not purely your classic heart for. I have a lot of headspace intruding on that heart process. Never gut, but (laughs) always head and heart. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's helpful. So I want to bring up this concept of melancholy because we talk about melancholy with the type fours a lot. And I think people think melancholy and we just think of Eeyore, which is not fair <laughs> because that's not that that's too that's too simple. And it's not even entirely accurate. So Victor Hugo, he's the guy who wrote Les Mis. He okay. said, Melancholy is the pleasure of being sad. I think what this often looks like is that force can easily get into their heads and into their feelings and just completely out of their bodies. Like you said earlier, not much gut. So fours will often like fantasize about what could be or what could have been. That's what this melancholic mindset is like. It's a longing for what is not. Right. It's fours long for Eden lost, as it were. Mm. And so this is oftentimes a very comfortable mindset for them to live in because it feels most authentic, real, and depthy. And I think sometimes pleasure and happiness can feel too fleeting. So it doesn't feel as authentic, even though it actually is. It doesn't feel as authentic or real or deep fours tend to want to have the serious conversations and plumb the depths of the ocean rather than bob on top every now and then. Is that, does that resonate with you? Completely fair. The depthy depths of the ocean are my <laughs> dwelling place. 
a dwelling place. It's interesting because there's obviously pain in my story that that ties me to the experience of the melancholy. It's not just some concept that I'm like, ooh, I read that in a book one time and I like it. I do feel it very deeply, I see it around me. What's interesting is that at some point when I was young, in the midst of all those messages I was receiving, I decided that, not decided, I accepted that there are times where life is hard and sad. And that seems like a big thing for a kid to take on. And complications arise from a six or seven year old deciding that the world is hard and sad. But at the same time, it meant that I was searching for meaning at a really young age. And my entire life, I'm in my 30s now, but my entire life I've had people telling me, oh, you're a really profound person for your age. <laughs> and, and it's simply because I've always been looking. If it wasn't on a book on the bookshelf in the library, I was trying to find the beauty in the melancholy, in the sadness, in the darkness. And one of the biggest thing that, things that affirmed my faith was the fact that this is ringing throughout the Bible on every page, really. But especially, the, I feel like people just like to skip the books of Jeremiah and Hosea and Ezekiel mm. or any of the prophets that are in scripture. Yeah. They, they don't like the, the depths of our experience. The dark parts are part of being human. And maybe I can be a little unfair and I will absolutely own and admit what you said about feeling like pleasure and happiness can be more fleeting than the darkness sometimes because I look around and I see more of it, to be honest. But that's where the hope comes in. That's where the, the message of scripture speaks to me so deeply about a dawn breaking over a dark night. I love the richness of that message. And I can cling to that even when it's really easy for me to only see the negative, only see the dark and to live in that melancholic space because there's truth there. There's truth to both, that the light is dawning, but that it is still dark. And I, I'm okay with that. And I, I feel like I often find myself stuck in conversations trying to communicate how okay with that I am because I think people think I need to be perked up or cheered up when I'm fine. That fact doesn't make me depressed. It's sure. just a reality that I'm looking yeah. forward to. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing that, Spencer. That was really vulnerable and I'm, yeah, it feels helpful. It's really helpful to take these words off of a page and this head knowledge out and, and see it experienced for someone. Because I'm not a four. I don't experience those same things. I experience right. glimpses of that because I'm a human. But to the extent that you do, I don't experience that. So it's it's cool to hear you speak it and, and share that. Thanks. So while melancholy is neither a good thing nor a bad thing, it just it's just a thing, right? I think when unchecked, it can lead the four to their core weakness, which is the third core motivation of the type. And for the fours, their core weakness is envy. They believe that there's something that everyone else has that they do not. A missing piece that everyone else has, but was lost on them somehow. So they'll devote themselves to being special at all costs. They're always longing for something more, never satisfied with who they are or what they already have. And they can sometimes feel sad even about other people's happiness. How do you relate to that? How have you seen envy for yourself? Everything that you just said is my favorite thing to do too. I, that was not Julie for you. I think that envy is one of those parts of my story that is, for someone who's so vulnerable, envy is one of the hard things to name mm. because it's absolutely present and it's been a part of my story for a long time, mm. but it's one of the ugly parts that's harder to give words to. Mm. I definitely see it in my relationships with other guys, that other feeling extended into my relationships with my peers growing up. And it wasn't really till I was in high school that I did any sports or anything athletic and figured out I was actually really good at them. But 
by that point, I had already predetermined in my mind that I was different from everyone. Mm. And I've, I've just got internal messages on repeat about how I am insufficient compared to the men around me or how I'm too much this or too much that. And, and so for me, that envy really metastasizes in this feeling of exclusion that I, that I have to I have to fight against. And it's easy to see how far back it goes. It even just sounds like a lot of the things I was just saying about my childhood, but it extends into my work performance. Like, am I am I as good of a bartender as the bartender next to me? Am I am I doing this right? Am I a good enough friend compared to this friend? Um, I find myself comparing myself quite a lot and wishing a lot. I think wishing is a key word, perhaps when especially I'm in a place of unhealth. I'm constantly wishing I was someone else. Because if you were someone else, that would bring you... If I was someone else, I would be less uniquely broken. The enemy loves to take that special part of me that God made sensitive and kind and good and say, that is your fatal flaw. And if you just didn't have that thing, people would love you more, you'd be understood, and you wouldn't have to try so hard. In the Enneagram world, when we talk about sixes, they get all the credit for a fear of abandonment. But I think that fear is just as present for the fours. It may be rather than a fear of abandonment specifically. I think it's more so a fear of being alone. Hmm. Absolutely. If if you're the only person that is a certain way, you're by definition a rare animal. Unique also means only one of in some definitions. Right. Which is lonely. Yes. Fours reside in the heart center which means they primarily take in information and then move out from their heart. That's like their feelings, their emotions. It also has this relational aspect where they're reading other people relationally or groups of people. Their secondary instinctual center, however, is their thinking because they're right next to the head center. On the Enneagram diagram, they're right next to fives, which, which begin our head center. What often happens is fours can feel and then they think about their feelings and then they feel about what they're thinking about. <laughs> and it's a cycle where they just think and feel and think and feel. Sometimes it can take them to really dark places, right? They can spiral pretty easily with that. Every single Enneagram type has a repressed instinctual center. And part of the work that we need to do is to develop that underdeveloped part of us. For the fours, because they use their feeling or heart center and their thinking or head center so much, oftentimes their gut center is underdeveloped. That's their doing muscle. Have you noticed that you struggle to connect with movement, decisiveness, action, all things that belong to the gut center? Absolutely. I find myself hesitating before that moment all the time. I, I tell my wife all the time, she's this gut-centric person, about how often I just get stuck in these cycles of this heart-mind spiral. Even going back to like this reading habit as a little kid, in the books, I wasn't just running away from my pain. I was looking for a way out. I was searching for a solution to what made me so broken. And there was this constant spinning in my head that I need to like solve me. What's the hesitation for you? Can you name it? Do you know? The hesitation is that either I won't get it right or that I am going to misrepresent myself in some way. Hmm. When I talk about moving from my authentic core, it's actually really difficult to feel like, is this me? Or is this some sort of construct I've built to respond to the situation? I think I've actually moved against my type in some ways at, at points to hide the uniqueness of myself. 
because mm-hmm. I'd rather feel at least seen in part rather than not seen at all. And especially when I was younger, there was just a, a really strong instinct to hide parts of myself and not mm-hmm. be authentic. And it it didn't work for very long. I had friendships that died very early because that that just wasn't a dynamic that my heart could juggle or manage. And it was healthy for me to even lay down some relationships that weren't serving me in that way. But I had to make the decision to do so. And it took me a long time. In terms of the actual action of doing it, some of those friendships took months and months for me to sort of even think through what I was feeling about those relationships and then feel what I thought about it and and Mm -hmm. eventually move into action. It takes a long time. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing all of that so vulnerably. I really hope that helps people understand a bit more of the struggle that force face. Thankfully, the story doesn't end with just the struggle. There's grace. And we acknowledge that the type four, because we see that this way of living does not work for them long-term. It helps to get you through childhood and even part of adulthood, but it doesn't work long-term. And so with grace, we acknowledge that the type four needs a new path. And this is where the fourth core motivation comes in, and that is the core longing. This is the message offered to your type that your head, your heart, your body, and your spirit need to hear and internalize. And that is that you are seen and loved for who you are, special and unique. It's hard for any of us to naturally accept these core longings when we first hear them. And some of us don't even relate to them when we first hear them because our ego personalities are that strong that we fight against receiving this message in any way. But one of the ways that I've learned that proves to be very powerful to help accept this message is to engage your repressed instinctual center. That for the fours is the gut. So I'm curious for you, how does this message resonate with you? And have you have you found that engaging your doing center helps you receive it better? Absolutely. I think it's funny how much doing has helped me in my growth. I'm often talking to friends like yourself about how much I want to add this to my life because I've spent so much time thinking and speaking in circles about what I'm thinking and feeling. When I'm at my most healthy, I'm doing a lot. (laughs) I'm actually more organized and productive. I'm taking all this stuff that I've been chewing on my whole life and I'm bringing it to people. And I'm not bringing it in a way of like, here's all of my pain and misery. It's more so that this has formed me and shaped me and allowed me to grow. It's like spending time with people for the express intention of getting to know them on their Mm -hmm. level and not trying to figure out how the relationship feeds back to me. There's very good friends I have that often remind me that I'm in my head and pull the conversation back away from that spiral. And it's such a blessing to me when they do, because I, I can spend all day long in the dark depths of the ocean. But when I have people who pull me forward and help me move, that's where they give me their gift. Hmm. When I think about the kinds of things, though, that enliven me and have moved me forward, I even think about going skydiving with my dad last summer. <laughs> and I never thought that I'd jump out of an airplane because I'm actually terrified of heights perfect activity for someone terrified of heights. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, but it it was a gut move. My dad said, do you want to do this? And I said, okay, Okay. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to feel too much about it. I'm just going to go and see what happens. And normally, in most of the situations in my life, I'd be thinking through all the alternatives, catastrophizing about what could go wrong, envisioning imaginatively what it would look like just flat on the ground. But (laughs) hey, I'm fine with the morbid. But with, with this moment, I remember thinking, I'm doing this because he invited me. I'm doing this because he wants to connect. And it just sounds exciting. It sounds like Mm -hmm. something that I could do if I can get past fear and just move. And I remember leaning over the edge of the door of the open airplane in this tandem skydive, waiting for the fear to come. And it never, there was this sort of shove. They literally shove you out the door and you free fall and your stomach doesn't drop until the parachute opens. So there was this 30 second lapse in which I just felt like, free and open 
And when I think about moving in, in health towards that gut center, that's the picture I'm getting in my brain is that free fall out of the airplane. <laughs> I love it. I think that's a really good analogy for what Ford need to do sometimes. Because you're never, you're never going to be sure. Oftentimes, you're not going to be sure when you're moving forward into something. You just got to do it. Right. And, and trust yourself. Trust that you'll be okay. Trust that people will catch you. Trust that people will be there with you. People aren't going to yeah. catch you if you jump out of a plane. That would hurt them. But yeah. It would. <laughs> so there are two primary practices that we're recommending to every single Enneagram type. And these are practices that help you internalize this core longing because the core longing is so important for us to internalize. It is what saves us from the trap of our type. So those two practices are breath prayers and affirmations. The breath prayers for type fours, we recommend that you breathe in, breathe deeply and breathe out the message. I am loved. I am seen. I am pursued. I am understood. Are there any words that you would add to that? Those are beautiful words to speak over yourself. I think that maybe the only thing I would add is that I am made right mm -hmm. and not made right in the sense of corrected or even in the salvific sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, made right in that God made me the way he made me on purpose. This is the kid who felt like he took up too much space, that he was too much. And learning to be myself like unashamedly and loudly has been a great joy in my life. And I think there's a part of it that brings God joy too. I love that, man. The affirmation that we recommend for fours is to speak over themselves. I am loved, seen, and understood apart from understanding myself, my emotions, and communicating my feelings to others. Apart from doing any of those things or, or knowing yourself, you are loved, you are seen, and you are understood. Does that land? Oh, it's, it's such a hard thing to grasp. <laughs> We've had conversations in the past about how hard it is to internalize those words. It's so yeah. easy to take on the words of the negative and, and make them my identity. But it has been a life work to resist those messages and try to internalize the truth that God speaks, that I could be loved even when there are parts of me that I still don't understand. My heart's telling me that I'm hard to love and my mind is telling me I, I need to know myself completely to make myself easier to love. So it's sometimes so hard to believe that there's someone who could actually know and love me even while I'm in process. But when I do allow that, when I surrender to it, it becomes comfort and grace that I can actually feel rather than torture. <laughs> Other than the opposite, where it's all you're longing for. But it really does require a level of openness that doesn't come naturally. Yeah. Amen, man. So before we finish up here, I want to paint a picture for you. And you're four, so you like pictures, right? I love pictures. Let's see <laughs> the analogies, all the analogies. Yes, exactly. So I'm going to paint this picture of a tree. There's three parts to this tree. Imagine the roots and the trunk as the first part. Imagine the branches as the second part. And then the fruit is the third part. As the four begins to believe the core longing that you are loved and seen for who you are, special and unique, that is the roots and the trunk of the tree. It's this core longing, this core message, a great message to build a foundation upon. Then the branches come. What this is, is this message that gives birth to the fours of virtue, which is equanimity or balance. Emotions are already incredibly important and valuable. Yes, but they mustn't lead your life. As you begin to balance those emotions and whatnot, and you develop these virtues, that's what the branches of the tree are. Finally, those branches then cultivate this fruit. For the type four, this fruit is a fortitude and a tenacity. You're expressing your authentic self and your authentic feelings with this inner strength and also balancing this tension of not being utterly controlled by your emotions and your suffering and your pain. And it helps you not get bogged down by that or stuck in that, but actually to take that gift to other people and to enter into their own pain. Probably the biggest gift that fours give 
the rest of us is the ability to enter into our suffering with us. It is such a gift that so many people have no idea how to do. It almost comes easy for the four. Yeah, there's something about it that's just there and present. It's beautiful, man. I hope this has encouraged everyone about fours, especially if you're a four listening to this. I hope that it was encouraging to you. Spencer, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being on here. Thanks for being my friend. Thanks for being my type four representative. You're fantastic. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of the help that you're offering people here. And I hope that anything I've shared could be of use to people. I'm sure it will be, man. Thanks, Spencer. Isn't he amazing, Scott? Yeah, that was really great. Spencer is such a good dude. Friends, thank you for listening to this episode. We hope that it helped you understand the type fours in your life better. If you know and love a type four, please send them this podcast episode so that they can feel known by you. Also, it would be awesome if you could give us some stars on Spotify and Apple. Follow us so that you don't miss any of the new episodes that are going to drop. We love taking this journey with you and want others who are brave enough to embark on it to know about this podcast too. Finally, if you were wondering about the song you hear in the background playing right now, that is my self-composed and self-produced song titled Four from my album, Any of Songs. Fun fact about it, this is the only song that I wrote in a different voice for. All the other eight songs speak in the first person, but this one speaks in second. Rather than the four singing it from their perspective, it's as if someone is singing to the four instead. My goal here was to help the four feel seen by another. So if you're a four, hopefully I achieve that goal. Always remember, we need a tool like the Enneagram to grow in self-awareness because what you don't own, owns you. Have a good one, everyone.